that photo you saw at the beginning uh, of, uh, first of all, I'm Lou Eisen, this is Ring Talk. And, and the photo you saw at the beginning of George Carpanche curled up in a fetal position, July 2nd, 1921, was at Boyle's 30 Acres um, uh, Stadium, boxing stadium. George, Jack Dempsey had just demolished him. In fact, in, I think in the first or I think it was second round, he hit, Dem he dropped Dempsey with the right hand. Dempsey got up immediately, but of course, Carpanche broke his hand in four places. Uh, Dempsey used to soak his chin in beef brine for seven, eight hours at a time. So very tough skin. He'd soak his hands. And uh, he was just unbeatable at this point. He was much bigger than George Carpanche. And this is an interesting fight. It's a salient point in boxing history because this is the fight that we're, that we're, this is the fight where the, the mafia, boxing, organized crime, looked at boxing as another racket and thought we're gonna take control because the money's worth it now. Previous to that, um, there had been other fights uh, that where the outcome had that this fight was not fixed, but there had been fights where the outcome was fixed or it was dubious or someone hadn't told one of the fighters and the judges and the referee were paid to score it a certain way. So, for, for and you see this on my Substack, lewisen.substack.com. I'm doing a four part series called uh, The Mob and Boxing. And the thing here is, uh, for instance, in um, I think 1889 it was, uh, Buffett Simmons became the light heavyweight, the heavyweight champ. He was also light heavyweight and middleweight champ, but he became the world heavyweight champion uh, when he knocked out years later James J. Corbett. However, he's fighting a guy named Sailor Tom Sharkey, another heavyweight who was, wasn't that skilled, but was skilled with using his head and budding and that. And it was supposed to be a legit fight, Carson City, Nevada. The referee was Wyatt Earp, the famous marshal who was never graced by a single bullet in his entire life. Unbeknownst to Fitzsimmons, uh, Dan Long, the manager of um, Tom Sharkey, Sailor Tom Sharkey, it, what happened was uh, he went to, to Earp, although Earp claimed it never happened, but there were witnesses there because it happened in the lobby of the hotel, uh, offered Herb, instead of whatever he was getting, 300 or 200 to referee the fight, offered him something like 2,500 if he would disqualify Fitzsimmons in the eighth round. So what happens is they're fighting. Fitzsimmons is just beating the hell out of Sharkey. Fitzsimmons was, I think, 6'1", 6'2". Sharkey was 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, and Fitzsimmons used his long reach. And, you know, Fitzsimmons from the waist down was like a bantamweight. From the waist up, he was a heavyweight. He was like a stevedore. And so he he was pounding. He'd broken Sharky's nose, knocked out his teeth, dropped them several times. He was playing with them at this point. Didn't like each other. And Fitzsimmons thought, rather than knock him out, I'll just play with him and make him suffer. I'll punish him. And in the eighth round, he was moving backwards. He had double jab. He had a right hand to Sharky right on the chin. And Sharky went down. And as he went down, he rolled over, grabbed his groin. And uh, Wyatt Earp called time, went to the corner, spoke to both corners and said, I'm disqualifying Fitzsimmons for a low blow. Now the audience went nuts because it wasn't a low blow. It, it, it was a long distance right hand clearly on the jaw. And everyone wanted to get in the ring to tear Earp apart. And then he pulled back his jacket, revealing his uh, six shooters on each side. 
on in his holsters, at which point the audience quieted down. So that was that had nothing to do with the mob. That was Sharky's manager fixing the fight in favor of his fighter. There was another fight in San Francisco around that time between Barbados Joe Walcott, the world welterweight champ, and George Kid Levine. And Levine was an all-time great fighter. And they fought many times. In one fight, his ear almost came off. That's how badly Walcott beat him. But in this fight, they'd been told by local criminals and gamblers in San Francisco, they said, Walcott's going to go down, he's grabbing my coffee, uh, for good in the 11th round. And gamblers had made that decision because Walcott was a favorite, so they bet on Levine, and they figured they could fix the fight. But during the fight, Walcott said to his manager, uh, Tom O'Rourke, who also managed George Dixon, we're not, I I'm not going to give in to this. To hell with them. One of the gamblers walked up to O'Rourke during the 11th round, put a gun in his ribs, pulled back the, cocked the trigger and said, I'll kill you right now. I'll, you know, I'll blow your stomach out and I'll blow your brains out and him. This guy goes down. This is uh, during the 11th round. He doesn't fight another minute. And after the round, O'Rourke climbs up and says, listen, the guy pulled a gun on me. He's going to kill us both. And immediately Walcott says, I broke my arm. I can't continue. And Levine wins to fight. Levine wins to fight. There's between this and mob fights, between those two fights, is these were local criminals, local people that didn't have national power. Difference between that and the mafia controlling boxing was the mafia was a criminal multi multinational conglomerate criminal organization that controlled the sport from coast to coast and north and south. They had enough mobsters and killers and people and promoters and fighters and managers and trainers and not so much trainers, but you know, officials from each state commission and also referees and judges under their thumb where they could do what they want because these people weren't going to challenge them. Their word was law. Now, before 1921, before the Dempsey-Carponche fight, um, the Bamba considered doing this, but it wasn't worth their while. Guys were making, you know, Tommy Burns got, what, 30 grand, which was a lot then for beating Jack Johnson. But then the mob, you know, feeling guys are getting 15 or 30 grand as a heavyweight champ to fight. The effort we're going to put into hiring the muscle and the people to intimidate them and to look at after the deal, it's going to come out costing us more than we're actually going to make. It's not worth it at this point. So at this point, the czar of boxing is still in prison, Oni Madden. Oni Madden's still in prison. He hasn't come out to 1923, but he's allied himself with Frank Costello and the capo de Tutti Capi, uh, Lucky Luciano and Mayor Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, you know, and they're talking. They come to visit him and they're saying, you know, the gate was 1,800,000 for the Dempsey-Garponche fight, plus with the concessions and the booze. I mean, you're well over 2 million. At that point, the mob was like, well, that's worth it. That's worth stealing the money, you know, for millions of dollars. And of course, Dempsey was so exciting after he beat uh, Jess Willard. It was exciting when he beat Willard, July 4th, 1919. Dempsey raised the limit late you know you have the debt ceiling in the united states government uh, all governments have that he raised a limit there was no such thing as a salary cap with dempsey came bigger money for everyone it didn't happen again till ali came by but with dempsey the money went up in the heavyweight division which means the money went up in all the divisions 
So uh, Dempsey is the reason for this. And so the mob looks at the fight with Carponche and they're think, and how do they know what the gate would be? Well, when the fight is set, I mean, Dempsey's already fought. There's no one that's going to beat him. He's, he's knocked everyone out. And Tex Rickard, the promoter, he sets this fight up and he's saying to everyone, well, you know, he's building it as a war hero because Carponche was a flying ace in World War One. Dempsey didn't fight because he was, he really was the lone source of money for his entire family, but he was looked upon as a slacker, which he wasn't. And so they had it as a war, the French war hero against the American slacker. And that was a lot, primarily that, that angle was built by his manager, Kearns, who couldn't care less about Dempsey. He just cared about making money. If Dempsey was the way he was going to make money, then that's how he was going to do it. He took Dempsey to the title, not only by leveraging Dempsey's knockout power into press to get him more press and more demands for better fights, but also because he knew that, you know, as he's moving up, he needed the muscle, the mob muscle in various cities to get certain fighters in the ring. And uh, Kern did that his whole career with Joey Maxim, Mickey Walker, you know, and other fighters. So what happens is, is we get this fight made. Now, in reality, Carponche's chances of beating Dempsey were slimmer than Twitty. Carponche was a light heavyweight. He moved up to heavyweight because that's where the money was. The problem for the Tex Rickard in this fight is they were going to have it originally at Yankee Stadium, or, or not at Yankee Stadium, excuse me. They were going to have it at Madison Square Garden, which held between 16 and 18,000 people. But within a week of the announcement, he's already got 45, 50,000 offers for seats. People are sending money in. We want seats. He doesn't want to return the money, and it keeps going up. 60,000 seats, 70,000 seats, you know, 80,000. So he realizes, I need a big stadium. I got to build it. And this is during Prohibition. Now, this, Prohibition is the stupidest thing the American government ever did. It was a group of small right-wing minority Republicans and Democrats trying to legislate morality. It was the best thing that ever happened to the mob. Because overnight, the mob went from being a criminal organization operating in various cities. You know, in New York, they controlled the store club. They controlled different rackets. They controlled the unions. But they would also fight for labor during a strike. Uh, they controlled the linen racket, the meat racket. They controlled restaurants. Dutch Schultz controlled all that. And uh, with Prohibition, Marilansky said years later, they were taken aback by prohibition because they thought they'd be making a couple hundred thousand a year. Instead, each year they're making hundreds and hundreds of millions. So Lansky said it would just stunned us. We had to op we had to organize along the lines of Ford and Chrysler and US Steel, you know, with JP Morgan and 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 with with uh Esso, uh um, you know, with John D. Rockefeller. Not with them, but organized their company organized the mob to such a minute in such minute details because the money was coming in such vast amounts of money they weren't prepared to make that much so they had to hide it in other rackets and one of them was boxing boxing was easy to take over because there was no central commission you know today when you look at the nfl there, there's a league with a with a uh you know president of the nfl president of the nhl president of the nba Central head. Boxing still doesn't have one central head anywhere. They have a series of corrupt, 
criminal sanctioning bodies like the WBC, IBF, WBA, WBO, all run by criminals. And then you have the state athletic commissions, which existed back then, and, and which are just run by paid appointees who take money to do whatever they're told to do by promoters. And so this happened back then. And Ricker needed to build this stadium. So I'm going to relate this all to one single point. So Ricker needs to build the stadium. Well, he's going to need hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's got to get it done in six to eight weeks. Who's got that kind of disposable income back then that they would lend to him? Ford's not going to do it. Morgan's, JP Morgan's not going to look at him and say, I, I'm not getting into boxing. You're low lights. You know, Roosevelt wouldn't do it. None of them would do it. No bank would do it. Who had that kind of disposable income? The mob. So he had to borrow mob money. And then he also took money from future promoter and his successor, uh, Mike Jacobs. Mike Jacobs was the top scalper in the world. And what he did was he he scalped tickets, not just for boxing, but for baseball, for hockey, for theater, for music. Whenever there was an event to be held anywhere, <coughs> excuse me, Jacobs bought all the tickets and scalped them. So he loaned record money. The other thing about getting money from the mob was they can guarantee to be labor peace. So Boyle's 30 acres was built quickly. We have the stadium there. <clears throat> they have a fight card. They see all the money that's coming in. And the mob is thinking, this is a good idea. It's a great idea because now with the hundreds of millions, hundreds and hundreds of millions we're making from, from prohibition, we can use that money to take over other rackets. Boxing was easy back then to take over. Who was going to have the guts and the backbone to um, to stand up to? Um, um, oh, hey, Tom, who has the guts and the backbone to stand up to the mob? I mean, who would? No one would because the mob didn't take any prisoners. They were either going to kill you, you know, or beat you up or intimidate you. To It was always the threat of violence that work for them more than violence, but they wouldn't hesitate to resort to violence. There's always that threat that would back them off. You know, people in boxing, they, they can't go to the police. Police don't care. Police are on the mob's payroll. So are people in the DA's office. Who's going to do anything? No one's going to do anything. So Carponche fights uh, Dempsey. Carponche is an interesting character. Carponche's manor, manager, Francois Deschamps, uh, was also connected with the French mob. And so when he beat Battling Siki, you know, he had the French mob behind him. So you look at, and then you look at uh, Primo Carnera years later, where people said, you know, when he came to the United States, the mafia destroyed him and stole his money. Right, but the French mob was stealing off Carnera and robbing him before he even got to the United States. Carnera owned only 65% of himself by the time he stepped on American soil. So we get back to this fight. Dempsey's manager is Jack Doc Kearns. And they did not get along because what would happen is if Dempsey was guaranteed a million dollars or 500 or $800,000, this is before the depression, the check would always go to Kearns. So he'd get the check for 800 grand and he'd split it to, with Dempsey. He'd give Dempsey 400,000. He'd take 400,000. But most of the time during the career, what happens was he'd give Dempsey 75 and said, I'll owe you the other 325. Because Kearns was an addicted gambler and he kept blowing their money. And Dempsey had had enough. 
Dempsey just said, you know, in the real world, people like you get killed for this. You can't do that. And so Rickard said to him, you just, I'll just write the checks to you, which is why Kearns eventually left him. And Dempsey, when they went to court, said, listen, you're suing me because I'm not giving him my part of the paycheck, which belongs to me, which is ridiculous. Carponche comes over to the United States. He's training in the States. Uh, when Carponche is training, there's women there watching him that are throwing their panties and their bras up into the ring. When he goes back to his hotel, he opens the door and there's naked women that don't know each other waiting in bed for him. So he was looked at as a war hero and a sex symbol. All I know is that these women are waiting in bed. I don't know what happened next, but I can guess. And I, I've never had that experience because if you look at me, I'm an incredibly ugly man. But, but it would be hard to imagine any man looking at that and thinking, I'm training for a fight. I can't do this. Well, maybe once. So Carpanche wasn't unskilled. He was a really good fighter. He knew what to do and he knew how to fight Dempsey. He just wasn't physically big enough to fight Dempsey. And, you know, when the fight starts, Carpanche comes out. And one of the bad things about the film of the fight, it's, it's they filmed it at a speed back then, which no longer exists. So it's like the old baseball things where the ball comes pitching, and I go, bang, and then blah, 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 like that. And you're thinking, well, he just ran the bases in under four seconds. That's not possible. And so you see Carpanche get knocked down. Referee's like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then he jumps up. So Carpanche uh, is holding his own. He knows he can't, he can't, Dempsey's got longer arms and he's powerful and he's going to come after him. He can't fight him from a distance. He's just not strong enough to fight him from a distance. As strange as it seems, when you're finding a guy that's that much more powerful, you're better off closer in because you're taking away his room to punch. If you can take away Dempsey's room to punch, you might have a chance, even if you can move him backwards. The problem, of course, is he couldn't move him backwards. Um, Dempsey was brilliant in close and knew how to throw punches in close. Even when people got close to Dempsey and held his arms, he was an expert at wiggling free and getting one arm free and hitting you with an uppercut. And Dempsey's fists were like getting hit with anvils. He was an incredibly strong man. And they said Dempsey and Sonny Liston were the only people that writers ever saw that could hit a heavy bag like it was a speed bag. You know, so this is a guy with absolutely crushing, phenomenal power. And Carpanche comes out and he's doing his best and they're trading punches and he's landing on Dempsey. And before the fight, Tex Ricker comes into Dempsey's dressing room and says to him, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Whatever you do, don't kill him. Okay? There's a lot of people here. The gate's almost two million. Let the fight go six, seven, eight rounds. This was not uncommon. A lot of fighters, Sam Langford, George Dixon, Benny Leonard, Jack Johnson, mostly black fighters, but some white fighters too, had to agree before a fight that they weren't going to kill their opponent or knock him out early because the fans paid money. And they might riot if the fight goes 30 seconds. So they'd have to let the other guy win some rounds. And then after a while, the manager would say, okay, it's been eight, nine rounds. Go ahead. You can do what you want. Dempsey didn't know any 
limits in in the ring with sparring partners or with anyone. So when writers, um, uh, I, I think Paul Gallico got in the ring with him to see what it was like to get hit by Dempsey. Dempsey said, just walk away. Don't come in and try to land a punch because I can't hold back. And he landed a punch and then Dempsey hit him in the chin and he woke up about two hours later. And he had a great story, but he had a sore head. So Dempsey was just a brutal puncher. Every punch he landed, he knew what he was doing. It was deliberate where he placed it and he did damage. He'd hit you in the arm and break bones in your arm. He'd break cartilage. And he he was just a brutal puncher and a body puncher. I mean, you the fight starts. And maybe 90 seconds in, he's already broken two of Carpentier's ribs. He just leans in and hammers him to the ribs. He ignores his head. And, you know, and now Carpentier's got to bring his arms down to protect his broken ribs. How does he protect his face? He's got to keep moving back. He's mostly grabbing and hugging Dempsey and walking him around the ring. And years later, watching the fight, someone said to him, well, you're hanging on there you know, to survive the round. And he said, no, I'm hanging on to survive my life. I wasn't in fear of losing the round. If someone had said, I'll tell you what, you can live, but you have to lose the round. I would have said, absolutely. Give them all the rounds. He said, it wasn't the round I was afraid of losing. It wasn't until I got in the ring with him and realized how strong he was that I, that I could very well lose my life. That's how strong the man was. And you got to give Carpanche credit because he's standing there getting hammered and he's thinking, well, and this is what trainers always say to their fighters. He's beating the hell out of me. I might as well throw a punch. I'm getting paid. You know, why not throw a punch back in anger? And he starts landing on Dempsey and you see he's staggering Dempsey at times. I mean, Carpanche was quick. He was quicker than Dempsey. A lot of people were quicker or faster than Dempsey. Dempsey was quick at recognizing weaknesses, mistakes that a fighter made and capitalizing on them. That quicker is different than faster. So, and it didn't matter if you're faster than Dempsey because eventually he'd have to land at least one punch. And that one punch he'd land would be all it ever took to, to get someone out of there or injure them to the extent that they no longer wanted to continue. You know, when Dempsey went in the ring, Dempsey started his career fighting four rounders. He came up from four rounders to six to eight to 10. But he said those were tough times. He was starving back then. And so he said, winning, if I don't win, I don't eat. Literally. No one's going to give me any money to eat. You get some money to participate, but it wouldn't last long. And a lot of times it'd be winner take all. So, you know, no choice. And when Dempsey started, he, you know, he left his home. And from Colorado, in Colorado, Manassas, in Manassas, he, he left there at 16. And so Dempsey had a very, very high-pitched voice like Jiminy Cricket, you know, or Mickey Mouse. So he'd go into these hobo jungles, and I've discussed this before, or miners' camps, and say, who wants to fight? Winner take all. And people literally would laugh for four or five minutes, and they would go and give money and say, that was funny, kid. We needed to laugh. Thank you. I'm not kidding. I can beat up any of you bums. And of course, you know, if he had 500 fights, he won probably 498 of them because he knew how to fight. But he always, from every fight, he learned something. And every town, he went to the local boxer, he picked up something and he learned something. And he was a master at balance and leverage. And it was Doc Kearns who saw him during these years. 
and saw what he could be and how exciting he was in the ring at times and turned him into this knockout giant. And uh, his trainer, Jimmy DeForest, had a lot to do with that too. And Dempsey had great balance, and great leverage. He knew how to balance himself to take a shot and he knew how to balance himself to deliver a shot. And when you're balanced, when you take a shot, you diffuse the power of the shot through your legs. But when you're throwing a punch and you're on balance, you get your entire weight. So Dempsey never weighed more than 186, 188 for a fight. But it's like getting hit in the head with a 188-pound baseball bat. You know, that'll take your head off. That could kill you. And so he wins the title in 1919. He beats the doomed Billy Misk, who had kidney disease. And... Um, Okay, so Tom says, uh, how much alike would you say Dempsey and Lamotta were in fighting styles? Um, that's a good question. Dempsey was different than Lamotta. He was a heavyweight. Lamotta was a middleweight, as we know. Um, Lamotta was much more skilled than people gave him credit for, but he, he, he couldn't fight at a distance because he was too small. Lamotta had to get in close. And also, Lamotta let emotion get into it at times. He was angry and hungry and wanted to really injure his opponent get in there and give him a beating because of all the injustices he had suffered dancy emotion never entered into it he was calm cool and collected and he and he was as good on defense as he was on offense and dempsey looked at it strategically before the fight what's the best way i can fight this guy to beat him and so dempsey would get guys in to mimic the other guys that he was fighting Lamada never did that. Lamada just went in there to beat the hell out of you. But Lamada was smart. He knew how to block shots. Lamada, I Dempsey had a great chin, but I think Lamada may and Basilio, but maybe Lamada had the best chin ever. I mean, him and Chevallo. Lamada could take a good shot. And, you know, when you saw Ray Robinson go after him and and their fight 1951, February 14th, Robinson hit hundreds of flush shots in the chin, and Lamada's knees never buckled. So Lamato is a different kind of offensive fighter too. Lamato concentrated on the body and he would hold you in place with his shoulders and then bring it up to the head. Dempsey could do that, but Dempsey could do it from a distance. And, and Lamato used short shots to the body and hooks. Dempsey also used uppercuts, left hook to the liver, you know, and then he would throw a left uppercut and a, or left hook and then a right hook. Lamada rarely jabbed. Dempsey always jabbed his way in because he knew a jab was a great way to disguise the right hand. Um, yes, Alistair. They just don't make fighters like that anymore. Dempsey was a savage. Yeah, Dempsey, you know, Dempsey really was unlike any other fighter because Dempsey, you know, today guys will fight and they'll train five, six. He's trained seven weeks. And when you look at Dempsey's early career, you know, he'd fight a guy you know, June 2nd, you know, 1914. Then he fought him again, June 10th, 1914. Then he fought him again, June 15th, 1914. He, he would just keep fighting and fighting and fighting these guys. And when he would train for the bigger fights, he didn't take the weekends off like some guy. Well, it's the weekend, so we don't train this weekend. I'll just rest. Dempsey trained 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, seven days a week for every fight. That's what he did. And he wasn't going to lose because of conditioning. And so Dempsey was the guy they would say, well, how many, how many sit-ups did James Jeffries do? Well, he would do 150. And Dempsey would say, well, I'll do 800. And he would do 800 sit-ups. And then he'd do 800 push-ups. And then he'd do 800 chin-ups. 
And then how many miles did Jack Johnson run? He ran eight or nine miles. Good. I'll run 15 to 20 and 15 there, 15 back. So Dempsey was in phenomenal shape and he wanted the best sparring partners, but Dempsey paid more because Dempsey's sparring partners knew that Dempsey wasn't going to hold back. He was in there to hurt you. You know, he was, he wanted to be fighting in the ring and training like he was in the real world, you know, in a real fight. Dempsey would soak his chin for hours in beef brine in his hands. And, you know, when he fought Willard, uh, Kearns, who needed money later on, lied and said, well, Willard, you know, he had his hands in plaster of Paris. That was complete BS. Angelo Dundee and Chris Dundee told me, if your hands are in plaster of Paris, you know how heavy that is? You couldn't lift your arms. And if you, and if you grab your arm with your other hand and hit something, you would break your bones into a thousand pieces. And as Chris Dundee told me, he didn't need plaster of Paris. He soaked his hands in beef brine all the time, hours and hours and hours on end. He said his hands without wraps or gloves were as tough as an anvil. And then you add the wraps. And of course, for the Willard fight, Dempsey's or Willard's trainer, Walter Moynihan, is in the dressing room, watching him get taped, and he signs off on it. And then he's in the ring watching him gloved up. If he's hiding something, he wouldn't have allowed people to film it or, or, film it or photograph it. And so his hands, he never loaded his hands. He didn't need to load his hands. When he worked the heavy bag or the speed bag, he did it with bare hands. He didn't need to put special gloves on. They existed, but he didn't need to put them on because his hands were so strong anyways. And if you saw him in, in later life, Angel told me he was the nicest guy you ever wanted to meet. But when he shook your hand, it was like he was breaking your arm off your body. And he wasn't purposely grabbing it. He wasn't really shaking. It was just a light shake, but he was so physically strong. And and uh, so you're right. There was no one like Alistair. There was no one like Dempsey. You know, he would soak his face in beef brine. So his face got rough. If you imagine Carpentier, you know, who whose hands were taped and he had the glove on, hit him solid in the chin, and he broke his own hand in four places. That's how tough Dempsey was. This was a, this was a farm guy from from Colorado, who was built out of brick. And so uh, Rickard wanted to make it like, you know, everyone cheering for, for Carpanche because it increased the gate. People were paying to see Dempsey lose. He wasn't a popular champion while he was champion. But in reality, Carpanche had no chance. Yeah, he knocked Dempsey down. He got, it was a, it was the quintessential, quintessential lucky punch. Uh, soaking them in beef brine, Tom, uh, hardens your skin and makes the skin like leather. So it, it makes it like a catcher's mitt. That's how Ray Arcel explained it to me. You put it in beef brine. And I don't mean like today a guy would do it for four minutes. You know, and his brother showed him this when he was a teenager. So before he was boxing, he wasn't boxing as often. But even when he was, five, six hours a day, beef brine, leave the hands in. And then when it comes out, your hands, your skin is shriveled, but it's tough, like an old working catcher's mitt and, and tough and strong. So your hands aren't going to break. You're not going to get broken knuckles. Your skin is tough. And same with his face. Dempsey never got cut. He had that strong, leathery face. And he could take a good shot. He knew what he was doing. These were the tricks that have been passed down for hundreds of years to soak your hands and your face in beef brine. And fighters had tricks like that all the time. Rocky Marciano would get into water up to his neck 
and throw punches in the water for hours at a time to the point where he could throw it as fast in water as you could in the ring. So he got in the ring, you know, he could punch even quicker. So guys had tricks like that all the time. And putting in a beef brine uh, hardens your skin and it, and it makes your hands feel a lot heavier, excuse me, than they actually are. And it strengthens the skin on your face so you can take a good punch and you don't get cut. Um, and this was a common thing. Yes, I, I, I'm sure John L. Sullivan did that. I, I know Sullivan got his eyes closed against Corbett, but he was old and alcoholic at that point. But I wouldn't doubt Sullivan did that, John L. Sullivan. And in fact, Sullivan probably learned that from fighters before him. One of my closest friends in, in the boxing fraternity and writing, a person who's editing the first chapter of my book, which is edited, I'm, I'm just waiting for the British uh, mail post to get the chapter back to me. Um, uh, Tony G can tell you about fighters from the 1700s doing the same thing. You watch them doing the same thing, like running these long distances and doing the push-ups and the sit-ups and all sorts of things to strengthen their body. In fact, George Dixon, the Canadian, who doesn't have a stamp, but should have a stamp. I'm getting off topic, but I'll get back to the topic. George Dixon was once was not the first fighter to run sprints, but he was the first fighter to run 10 miles stop and then spend a half hour running sprints, 10 yards or 20 yard sprint, you know, or a hundred yard sprint. Cause he knew fights happen that way. You know, he knew that you'd get into some action for 15, 20 seconds, and then it would calm down. And then a couple of seconds later it would happen again. So he wanted his body to be ready for the change in action to be able to speed up when he needed it. And that was a seminal turning point in the training of boxers. He also invented shadow boxing and, and, and the heavy bag. We're talking about the 1890s at this point. Dempsey, when you see him training, it's unbelievable because the muscles on his back, it looked like a bed of snakes. I mean, as I said, he would hit the heavy bag with one or two punches and it would just be flying, you know, three, 400 pound heavy bag. And with the speed bag, he'd be hitting it like this and he'd be talking to somebody like this and just doing it. He wasn't even looking and he was doing it. Carpaccio was the same way. Carpaccio was very smart in the ring. Yes, there should be, Tom, you're right, a Canadian boxing legend stamp collection. And I sent a long letter, uh, courtesy of my MP, uh, Marco Mendocino, to the head of Canada Post, or the person in charge of Canada Post. And they said no one would care. They didn't even read it. So it's all these different boxers going back over 100 years that were world champions and Canadian. So that's a story, a program for another day. So Carpanche was very skilled, but thank you for bringing it up because it's near and dear to my heart. Um, the thing about Carpanche is, is um, he, he, um, he was a really good defensive fighter. So Dempsey, he was great at sidestepping guys. He had great lateral movement. He depended on his movement. He was great at creating angles. The problem for him against Dempsey was next to Joe Lewis, or maybe along with Joe Lewis, I should say, he was magnificent at cutting off the ring. Dempsey was smart. He was a thinking men's fighter. He wasn't a walk-in face first brawler. Dempsey knew, and he said he learned this from the great, who also deserves a stamp, the great Canadian, Sam Langford, how to cut off the ring. And Dempsey was supposed to fight Langford in 1914-15 and refused. He told his first manager then, who was a real crook, first time Dempsey was in New York, I can't fight him. He's been fighting since I was six. He's the best fighter on earth. He'd kill me. Not beat me. He'd kill me. 
but he, he loved Langford and became close friends with him. And when he was on the way up, Langford took him aside and said, here's the key to cutting off the ring. You want to make your opponent take six steps to every two you take. And the reason for that is you're not only instilling fear, you're tiring his legs out. So when you cut the ring by moving diagonally, the other guy still got to move four or five, six steps to get away. You've moved two steps to cut him off. He moves back, you, you, you moved a couple steps that way to cut him off. You're cornering him, he can't get out. And the other thing Langford taught Dempsey was, once you get to him and you put the jab out to hide your right hand, put your front leg, your knee in between his legs. That way you've immobilized him now. You've taken his balance away, so he can't brace himself for a shot, but you're also not allowing him to move either way. Right now he's just a stationary target taking your best shots. And Dempsey took that to heart. As I said, Dempsey would listen to a guy like Langford because, you know, Dempsey didn't see Cully. Dempsey looked at him and said, this is the greatest fighter that ever lived. I'm going to learn something from him. Now, years later, Dempsey signed to fight Harry Wills, another great black fighter. But Kearns said, no, nope, we're not going to do it. Don't want to have any truck with him at all. We're going to fight Gene Tunney. Instead, there's more money. And in fact, Dempsey had a sparring partner from Toronto, Larry Gaines, the great black heavyweight, who had to go to Britain to make money. Gaines busted up Dempsey's new nose and Kearns let him go. And Kearns said, Larry, you got two strikes against you. You're black and you're Canadian. I don't think being Canadian was a strike, but he said, if you're a white man, I'd drop Dempsey and manage you because you'd be world champion. But, uh, these were two good fighters, except that a good big man beats, a, yeah, a modern, you're right, Tom, beats a good little man. And that always happens. And it's it's whoever can impose their will on the other fighter. And no one was better in boxing history than imposing his will on other fighters. You know, Dempsey couldn't knock Tommy Gibbons out in Shelby, Montana, but he beat the hell out of him. Dempsey, you know, destroyed Bill Brennan, caught him in the 12th round. Dempsey beat Billy Misk, although Billy Misk was suffering from kidney damage. And there's two great books. There's one on Langford by Clay Moyle, a good friend of mine, and another one on the Dune Billy Misk by Clay Moyle. So there's lots of great books on Jack Dempsey. You know, Randy Roberts, the great historian, wrote one. And, and uh, Roger Kahn, you know, Flame of Pure Fire, one of my favorites. And of course, my publisher and mentor, Adam Pollock, has a two-book series out on Jack Dempsey, which is definitive. So Dempsey's an endlessly fascinating character in boxing. Carpanchi put his own book out in the 1920s. And this was a fight that caught the imagination. Could a light heavyweight? As it always will beat the heavyweight champion of the world. And, you know, the fight's going on. One round, two rounds, three rounds. And after the third round, Kearns just says, you know, we don't want to let him get another lucky shot in and drop you. Um, he's getting a bit brave. Take him out. And, you know... Carpanchi comes in and his ribs are busted. He's broken his hand. So he's a one-handed fighter. To fight Dempsey in perfect shape with two good hands and no broken ribs is a death sentence. But to have two broken ribs and a broken right hand, and he's a right-handed fighter, you know, Carpanchi knows he's on borrowed time. And so Carpanchi would get knocked down, stay down to the count of nine, jump up. Back then, fighters were smart. They'd get hit, and then they'd take a nine count. Because the longer you take, the more you get your head together. Today, guys get up at the count of one as if to prove they're not hurt. But they're still groggy. If you take the full count, why not? You don't lose any more points. 
Now, Tom said, Andrea Ward was a modern master of the technique of closing the distance, getting hip to hip with his leg, legs between a land strong, sharp punches from there. Yeah, the way he took apart uh, Kovalev, um, Andrea Ward was a master. He's one of the greatest. First of all, he's a magnificent boxing analyst and very well spoken, spoken. But he's a great, he was a great fighter. And I don't think people realize how brilliant Andre Ward was as a fighter uh, at this moment in time. But as time goes by and years from now, they look back at him as one of the all-time greats. He, greats. he was great. It didn't, emotion didn't enter into it with Andre Ward. He knew his business well. He was well-trained. He knew, he knew what the other fighter was going to do. He had perfect balance, which is rare in any sport great hands, great sense of anticipation, and ring geography. And that was Jack Dempsey. You know, back when Jack Dempsey fought, the rules were different. So you could stand over a guy when you knocked him down. And how much of an influence did Sam McVeigh have in Carponche, asks Alistair. McVeigh was a great fighter. There, there were three or four tremendous black fighters back then. Uh, there was Sam McVeigh. As I'm sure Alistair would know, there was uh, Joe Jeanette. My friend Joe Body wrote a great book on him. And, of course, the immortal uh, Sam Langford and Jack Johnson. Um, they were all great fighters. M McVeigh certainly showed Carponche stuff. They were friends. and But he showed him what he knew. It wasn't that it, – it's kind of hard to explain. Um, Langford beat McVeigh, and so did Jeanette in a – classic 49 round fight but they could only show you the best of what they knew langford was a much more well-rounded fighter than sam mcveigh and mcveigh was a great fighter but he couldn't get anything done in the states he had to go to france he was an influence definitely on carpon on carponche because carponche saw his style but carponche didn't have the ring the physical musculature and the raw power of mcveigh also mcveigh took a lot of shots and Carponche didn't like doing that. So he tried to stay away. So McVeigh was showing him how to get a lot of power behind his shots, how to plant his feet correctly, and how to, you know, slip shots. McVeigh just wasn't as quick as Carponche because Carponche wasn't as big a man as McVeigh. He was a much thinner man. And they were both great fighters. And in, if McVeigh was alive today, you'd have to have him as a favorite for world champion. So all those fighters in France that went to France, all these great African-American fighters, they definitely had an influence on Carponche because Carponche started out as a karate, as an expert in karate, and then moved on to, um, to boxing. And, and a lot of that was due to the influence of Sam McVeigh and Joe Jeanette. They were the ones that, you know, were convincing people in France that when they fought there, that this was the new coming sport because karate was thousands of years old at that time. So yes, he did have a, a big influence on him, but Carpentier didn't have McVeigh's power and he didn't certainly didn't have his chin. So he could fight and he was a great light heavy champ, but, um, and he beat the immortal Ted Kitt Lewis in one round, though he hit him on the break. But when it came to Dempsey, that was a much taller order. And at that point, Tex Rickard was really desperate to get anyone to get in the ring of Dempsey to make money, and especially an international fight. Seen a gallant World War I hero, good-looking Frenchman, and the slacker Jack Dempsey. 
thanks. McVeigh versus Joe Dinnett fight would make a great topic for another Sunday. Yes, maybe I'll do that next week. The McVeigh fight versus Joe Dinnett was 49 rounds. And they knocked each other down dozens of times until McVeigh finally uh, couldn't continue. Carponche was lifelong friends with um, uh, Jack Dempsey. They became very close. And Carponche was a real gentleman in his old age. But when you see pictures of them when they're in their 60s or 70s, you can see even then the physical difference in height and just body mass between Dempsey and Carponche. You think, how on earth did Carponche think he could win? Carponche thought, you know what? I'm smarter, which he wasn't, and I'm quicker, and I can get there first, and maybe I have the power to do that. And I've always said this about boxing. If you're not going to take a risk or a chance on yourself, what's the point? Why be in it at all then? So it was a good four-round fight. It was part of a long card, and uh, there were 75, 80,000 people there, and Carponche did his best. He fought to the best of his ability, but um, he just, you know, wasn't able to do it. Couldn't pull off against a great Jack Dempsey, and not many people could. Gene Tunney did in 26 and 27, but those were mob-controlled fights as well. And even in America, because his manager, Francois Deschamps, was con controlled by the, Mon or the Montreal, the, the French mob, you know, there was still money to be paid to the American mob. And then of course, two years later in 1923, only Madden comes out of prison and takes over boxing uh, completely. And that was just the way it worked. And years later, one of the guys who challenged Jensen, Bill Brennan, opened a club in New York. And to open a bar or a restaurant, you had to get permission from Dutch Schultz. And Metropolitan, you had to join his Metropolitan Cafe and Restaurant Association. And Brandon got threatened numerous times by, by thugs from Schultz. And Dempsey said, you better pay him. That's just the way. I'm not paying him. I'm an American. I'm legally allowed to open a restaurant. And of course, he was selling booze under the table. But still, he thought, I shouldn't have to pay the mob. That's not legal. Well, in New York, they ran everything. That was one of the rackets. And finally, uh, Dutch Shelfs had enough and said, get rid of him. And uh, a guy walked into his bar. It was a 60-foot bar. Here's the storefront. You walk in here, and there's the bar facing you, and it goes 60 feet down. At the very other end is Brennan talking to customers. This guy looms over, touches a button on the cash register, it opens, grabs all the money. Now, you think a guy doing that would have a gun or run. He didn't. Put it in, took it all, put it in his pocket, looked at Brennan, smiled, toodaloo. He actually said toodaloo, walks out, walks to, out the front, turns to his right. Brennan's enraged. You know, I'm a former, I challenged Jack Dempsey. No one's going to do that to me. Runs after him, and the guy doesn't move. It should have been a clue. And then when he almost gets to him, the guy runs another two feet, runs down an alley. And when he gets to the end of the alley, the guy jumps on the ground and then a bunch of gunmen open fire and kill Brennan. And Dempsey said years later, I warned him. I warned him. Dempsey for his restaurant paid the mob tax right up until the 70s. You did even after Prohibition ended, you know, because they were in charge of the food suppliers, the cutlery, the linen, 
they they own the the waiters unions the chef unions so you you there's, there's nothing you can do and dempsey is dempsey said i'm one guy i can't stand up to the mob on my own and so that was unfortunate um for bill brennan and it happened to four or five other fighters during the that time and then that this fight because the money was so great was where the mob thought yeah this is worth taking over now and did and from then on controlled the sport uh you know and until the 1970s um but you can actually see the dempsey carponche fight on television on television on youtube and it's a wonderful fight it's uh worth watching it's only four rounds but it's uh interesting to see all the fans back then very hot day and interesting to see how many people you can make out in the corner, in Dempsey's corner, that you recognize. When um, when Jack Johnson fought Jess Willard, you look at that, and in his corner you see Sam McVeigh. Johnson and McVeigh were very close friends. So it's interesting when you can pick guys like that out in the background. Um, I think I, I've, I have photos of Carponche together with Gene Tunney and Jack Dempsey. I don't know if they were actually close or not. Tunney was, was really... A private person with his wife Polly Lauder, and only came out in public to help his son. When his son ran for political office, uh, he was close with Dempsey, but I don't know if he was close with Carpanche. I don't think so because Carpanche came to the states rarely. He mostly lived in France, but he kept up with Jack Dempsey in correspondence. Listen, I hope everyone here has enjoyed the show, and it's been best part for me. It's been. Uh, interacting with Tom and Alistair and and uh, please tell all your friends if you enjoyed this and next week we will talk about as uh, Alistair uh, suggested I want to thank you Alistair for and thank Tom too um, we'll talk about the Sam McVeigh Joe Jeanette fight that went 49 rounds that's one of the all-time great fights in the 300 year history of modern boxing Today, we talked about Jack Dempsey versus George Carponche, 1921, the fight that changed boxing forever because it allowed the mafia to get control of the sport and never leave. My name's Lou Eisen. I hope you enjoyed Ring Talk for today. See you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye.